Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Beth Malden, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Lisa Greenwald about her new book, Daughters of 1968, Redefining French Feminism in the Women's Liberation Movement. Lisa, thanks for being here. Um, Thank you, Beth, for having me on the show. And also thank you to whomever is listening to me talk about my book and feminism, a very relevant topic for our time. But I know that you have so many competing interests on your time. So thanks for joining in and listening. Why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write about French feminism? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I lead a delightfully double life. By day, I teach world history and U.S. history to 10th and 11th graders at Stuyvesant High School in New York City, which is a public school where admission is based solely on one exam. And at night and in the summer, I'm a historian of France, women, and feminism. I'm actually on a mission to inspire more PhDs to enter the K-12 to teaching profession. So for all of you unemployed graduate students who might be listening, please take note. It is really hard work. Um, although very enjoyable, mm-hmm. I might add, but consider that your presence in K to 12 education would elevate the teaching field and fill it with teachers who really know their subject. Yeah. And you have summers off to research and write, yes. um, as I have shown. And so now how I came to this topic. So it was 1986 and I had just completed the master's part of one of the first PhD programs in women's history. But I felt cloistered and I wanted some new experiences, so I went to Paris on the invitation of a friend. And I'm signing up for French courses at the Sorbonne, des cours de civilisation française, for people like me who didn't speak a word of French. And I asked my friend to find out where the university, quote unquote, women's center is located. Now, to my mind at the time, this is like asking where I could find the cafeteria in the 1980s, it seemed that many, many um, universities uh, had quote-unquote women's centers, and they were spaces for all sorts of things, getting information, but they tended to be women's only spaces where women got together and published feminist, uh, feminist writings, feminist journals, uh, worked on strategy for marches and protests, et cetera. And in pref- preparation for this interview, actually, I um, I Googled Women's Center for Columbia University and New York University, where I am in New York here, um, and I came up with health centers. So um, I, I don't know how many exist anymore. They maybe exist in another capacity, but at any rate, Um, At the time, in 1986, this friend had no clue what I was talking about, and neither did anyone else. And so I was mystified. Did France just not have feminists? And it turned out that France did have feminists, but they were lying low after political events within the movement and within France as a whole. 
And I decided to learn more. And the more I searched for 20th century feminism in France, the more I found. But it was largely unrecognizable from the quote unquote French feminism being talked about by American academics. And quote unquote French feminism as a postmodern linguistic phenomenon has become so reified in academic circles in America as to make us appear entirely ignorant about what was really going on in France. So it's, it wasn't so much a misreading. It was a choice to interpret philosophical and linguistic inquiry as a social and political movement. And in my book, I speculate about why this might have happened. But in doing so, the definition of what was feminism in France really narrowed. And um, in fact, the greatest successes of feminism in France were political and institutional change, which is one of my arguments. And I think that French and history departments all over the U.S. will benefit from this reappraisal. Mm -hmm. Well, your book, of course, is, is about the women's movement in France after May 68, but you set the stage for us in your first chapter by going back to World War II and the liberation of France in 1944. Um, and you talk about the status of women in this post-war society. And you write that despite a continuity of attitudes and social policies, the war and its aftermath created a crucial separation from the past. So what what remained relatively the same for women after the war and how did their lives change? Um, some things changed and some things stayed the same. Uh, World War II and its aftermath shook the French state and people to their core. Besides having been occupied and committed either to collaborating, resisting, or simply staying alive, everyone knew it was impossible to return to some imagined pre-war erratic state. From a gender perspective, the war was also destabilizing, and women had been fed the official Vichy line of home and family, but many women lived by different codes, either out of necessity, they, for example, they had to earn wages because of an absent father or husband, or they were working in the resistance movement, playing on the register of femininity while trying to kill Germans. So the years after the war ended were, uh, were also filled with deprivation and insecurity. And in many ways, gender norms were a luxury many women could and men couldn't afford. The Fourth Republic and Charles de Gaulle recognized this by finally granting women the vote um, by decree in 1944. And we could consider this superficial and merely symbolic, and it was symbolic. Um, but neither women nor men in France in 1945 thought it was superficial. And it really meant that women had entered that pantheon of the Republic, that they had fought so hard um, since the revolution to, to enter. Um, and really nothing would be the same. And it was the start of many more changes to come. So you're right. We were talking before about the continuation of natalist policies. Um, since France now saw itself as even more behind the eight ball than it had been um, you know, after World War One and and after the um, the Franco-Prussian War, but the new generation in power understood that they would have to approach their desire for more babies differently. Um, for one, they recognized that more women than ever, middle class women as well as working class women, had to work, and France was just so poor. And the only way, really, to incentivize women reasonably. Um, was 
to do a sort of double thing through maternity leave and a system of well-run daycare centers. Of course, also, and making sure that contraception and abortion remained illegal. And on top of that, this was overlaid by a growing commercial sector that sold femininity and sex explicitly. And I think we should also remember that. So jumping ahead um, to 1949, so five years later, Simone de Beauvoir publishes her groundbreaking work, The Second Sex, which addresses many of the issues that you just described. And, And what were the main arguments of her book? So The Second Sex came out in two volumes, five months apart in 1949. Volume one focused on myths and facts Um, deliberately and with wide-ranging analysis. Beauvoir took to task biological, psychoanalytic, and Marxist theories for poorly explaining and justifying women's inferior status in society. Volume two focused on what she called lived experience, in which she explained how women lived those myths historically and in contemporary times. Beauvoir's fundamental thesis that women are made, not born, and that femininity is a social construct developed and maintained to the detriment of women and the advantage of men shook up her intellectual milieu, and it also reverberated beyond France, as we know. Beauvoir argued that neither biological difference nor recent history could justify men's domination of women and culture. And this existentialist theory that the individual person is a free and responsible agent who determines his or her, her, his or her own actions with free will replaced these very canned notions of nature and destiny, which we commonly see in other writing about women during this time. Another groundbreaking aspect of Beauvoir's writing was that she drew a direct link between male patriarchalism, French colonialism, and racism. And this was an analogy um, that had few, if any, analogs in her day. And her book also served as an opening salvo for repositioning a feminist voice that did not take uh, gender norms as a given and was willing to criticize social conventions and, um, well, social conventions around gender roles and various social conventions. There's so much written about Beauvoir, by the way, um, but I can really recommend a really smart, thin volume in this Oxford series. It's by uh, Sandrine Mm -hmm. Sanos called Simone de Beauvoir, Creating a Feminist Existence in the World. And it summarizes her ideas and her life really, really well, and also provides really crucial historical context, which is which sometimes really doesn't appear in uh, works about Beauvoir. So I can really recommend that. The Second Sex was a bestseller in France. It was read widely by many, many women. Um, But it was also attacked at the same time by not only the right, but the left as well. Why was that? Um, It seems pretty clear on the face of things why the right would criticize her, right? Right. So... First, right, right. <laughs> first, Beauvoir, first Beauvoir herself lived outside of conventional norms in a hotel on the left bank with her philosopher lover. Right, she's not a femme au foyer at a time when that's what women should be, or at least that's what women should be on the face of things. Um, second, she spoke explicitly about bodies and gender roles, 
um, in short, everything that bourgeois convention dictated silence around. Um, she also explicitly argued for birth control when the French right was explicitly arguing for babies. In fact, after the war, de Gaulle commissioned an, an institute on demography, which exists to this day, the uh, National Institute of Demographic Studies. And he uh, put at its head uh, Alfred Sauvy, who was a real anti-Malthusian at the time. What might not be so obvious is why the left was critical. We like to think of the left today as, quote unquote, progressive. But the left in France from 1945 to about 1975 was um, by and large as socially conservative as their right-wing contemporaries. Mm -hmm. The Communist Party was the most powerful and consistent party on the left, and it maintained the line that women would be liberated with the downfall of capitalism. And every time that I start thinking that no one really believed this, I remind myself that it took Beauvoir herself decades and a lot of convincing to disabuse herself of this notion. Even as I say this, I know that the reality was more complicated within the party. And across the decades from the 1940s to the 70s, party members had an internal debate over how much energy they should devote to, quote unquote, women's issues. And increasingly, party women put pressure on them to do more. But they never really resolved or felt moved to address women's leadership roles in the movement. And um, much of the women's movement by the 1970s really lost patience with them over this. The Socialist Party had less political traction before the 1970s, and you would have thought that it would have embraced a more quote-unquote progressive platform to get an edge on the communists, but they actually did the opposite, shutting down discussion by party women about how to raise women's status in the party, party hierarchy and how to address sexism in general, even in the 1970s. Party women by the late 1970s created an in-house organization uh, called Courantois, or the third way to move the Socialist Party to feminism from the inside. But it met enough resistance that it ultimately disbanded. And a number of those women just moved into the mainstream feminist party and kind of left the Socialist hmm. Party. Up until the presidential campaign of 1980 to 81, leadership across the political spectrum was concerned about the power and prestige of France. It wanted more French workers for the Republic, and it believed that women should be seen at home and not heard in the halls of Parliament. Even after the Socialists won, feminists had to continue battling for female politicians to be taken seriously and for women's issues to become everyone's issues. And this, in fact, is pretty much where I end the book because it is a watershed change when the Socialists take power and women are able to... Um, make even more significant inroads in politics and really change politics in ways that perhaps no other country has done yet, certainly no other Western or European country. If I were to write a second volume, I would start there. Let's move ahead now to 1968, about 20 years after the, the period we've been talking about. And May 68 was a watershed moment in French society and culture and politics. Can you give us a brief history of May 68, then discuss how the events of May transformed the direction of the feminist movement? Sure. So since we've ta been talking about the French obsession with the birth rate, Perhaps we can consider the events of May 1968 as France's problem of beware what you wish for. <laughs> there were many causes of the events that erupted in a particular historical time and place, but 
For starters, there were about 175,000 university students in 1958, just to give you a sense of proportion. And by 1968, when all those coveted babies had been born in the after the baby boom, after the war, there were approximately 500,000. Wow. Right. The trouble was that universities had neither expanded sufficiently to meet this demand, nor had modernized with the times. What started as a rowdy protest in a spillover university location in Nanterre, just outside of Paris proper, uh, against strict regulations on women's dormitories, in fact, um, became a much larger protest about the French educational system and then about France itself. The traditional left resisted joining in at first, but remarkably, workers linked arms with the university students and went on strike across France, bringing the country to a virtual standstill. Order was eventually restored, but not before bloody street fighting with the police and President de Gaulle's secret rendezvous with uh, his general in charge of occupation forces in Baden-Baden, Germany. Um, what else? The events radicalized feminism, which between the liberation and 1968 had been really an institutional affair. But I really want to emphasize that uh, feminism between the liberation and 1968 although it wasn't called feminism, or most women wouldn't say, I am a feminist, was incredibly important in France and incredibly powerful. So tough women like Germaine uh, Poinceau-Chapuis and radical socialist Jacqueline Tompatenotre and communist Jeanette Prin and Marie-Claude Vaillant-Courtourier, um, they were in the halls of parliament fighting to dismantle the matrimonial regimes of the Napoleonic Code, which regulated uh, all of basically all of women's lives once they were married. And they also fought to legalize contraception for married women. Um, they operated within a world of explicit male dominance, and it's really a tribute to their persistence and political savvy that they got done what they did. But feminism that came out of the events expanded the definition of what it meant to be political in social and cultural terms. A new generation had come of age in a world of greater wealth and possibility. There was an increasing rebelliousness in the air, um, and we obviously see the events of 1968 as a sort of worldwide phenomenon that really spanned the globe in different, in mm -hmm. different ways. Um, there was a growing Maoist left that challenged traditional Stalinism, which had held on to influence, particularly in France. There was a growing middle class and more of its young women were employed. Um, and more women completed lycée and went to university. And these women began to question why when they were as equally accomplished as their male colleagues, were they shut out of the strategy meetings and left to make the coffee and babysit the kids? This generation picked up the second sex and then recruited its author to help them launch a more radical feminism that sought to rectify inequalities, but also to transform cultural expectations. Going back to the second sex, so the, the, the ideas of Simone de Beauvoir, which as you point out, were so anomalous when it was published <clears throat> in 1949, became current among feminists in the late 60s. And what were some of the ways that women in the movement were influenced by the second sex? I love this question because it's hard for us to understand in 2019 
um, what it was like to be a French woman who did not ascribe to the traditional gender ideology before 1968 or 70. And I'm not even talking about sexuality. I'm talking about the things that you and I and all of our listeners on both sides of the Atlantic can take for granted. De jure equality and a plethora of analytical frameworks for understanding the oppression of women. Beauvoir had created a sophisticated outline for further critical exploration, and she had slaughtered a lot of sexist cows like pseudoscience, historical materialism even, classical psychoanalysis is another one. But before the modern feminist movement in France, which was quietly built up, as I was saying, in the 1950s and 60s, there was no political institution to turn to. Christine Delphi, one of the great intellectuals and activists of post-68 feminism, remembers having feminist attitudes, but thinking that she'd have to suffer in silence. She likes to say that history caught up with her, but the reality is that she herself pulled history along with her. Um, Delphi and other early militants also pulled Beauvoir along because they actually went to her um, and said, will you join our movement? Beauvoir's political activism had been up to that point limited to writing and lending her name to causes and publications as a famous intellectual, but now she went out on the streets and on radio and television advocating for women's liberation. There were many women's groups that emerged from May 68, but you state that the story of one group in particular, the FMA, illustrates the birth and development of second wave feminism. Could you tell us about the FMA? Sure. So the FMA, um, or Femina Masculin Avenir, um, was a seedbed for some of the most influential activists of French feminism. Some of the members included Anne Zelensky, founder of the Ligue du Droit des Femmes, Christine Delphi, who I just mentioned, who is a sociologist and radical feminist and founder of the feminist journal Question Féministe and Nouvelle Question Féministe, and Emmanuel de Lesseps, also a feminist theorist. And there were others. The initial group contained men, but they were eventually asked to leave as French feminists followed the practice of other feminist movements in creating women-only spaces. What made the group so influential, besides the brilliance of its members, um, was that they created a theoretical laboratory to experiment, articulate, articulate these ideas, and read and write. Still, FMA didn't come out of nowhere. In fact, another influential group, the Mouvement Démocratique Féminin, um, or MDF, came before it, and this, was, this group was composed of the few young progressive women in politics, like socialists Yvette Roudy and Colette Audry, and the lawyer Giselle Alimi, along with a number of other professionals, um, lawyers, doctors, researchers. These women were interested, um, uh, let me say this way, these women were in were were real intellectual and political powerhouses, and they used their meetings to discuss policy and to strategize about how to transform it. They didn't want to upend the system, though. They wanted to fix it. And FMA had more radical ideas. Members of FMA were interested in the ideas and actions that the more radical participants in the American feminist movement were engaged in, but much of their discussion happened in isolation. Uh, 
there again, there wasn't a political feminist movement yet. So they were sort of just a group that got together and talked about things. Some authors and books that influenced them early on were Shulamith Firestone's The Dialectic of Sex, where she takes the Marxist paradigm and employs it to analyze women as a sex class. Um, the Scum Manifesto by Valérie, well, Valérie Solanas, um, who was an American. She's the woman who tried to assassinate uh, Andy Warhol mm -hmm. um, and her manifesto, the society for cutting up men took men and the entire patriarchy to task for all the ills of society, not just for women. And Betty Friedan, the feminist mystique, uh, which was translated by Rudy in 1964. So, in the 1970s, sexuality became political, and you have feminists focusing on sexuality and the family, while at the same time redefining sexual standards. And the FMI advocated for women's sexual liberation and considered it a yardstick for judging patriarchal oppression. Could you elaborate on this? Let's enlarge this from FMA to feminism of the 1970s in general. Mm -hmm. um, Kate Millett wrote a book about sexual politics, which was translated and published in French in 1971. And feminists were thinking and talking about how women's bodies were used and abused for patriarchal purposes. But the discussion over women's sexuality was larger. For one thing, the sexual revolution was happening in France in the 1960s, even while birth control was illegal. And then when it was first legalized and barely used, in part due to accessibility and in part due to stigma. Um, so the protests of May 68 were sparked over access to women's dorms and bodies, after all. Um, men wanted, and women wanted there not to be so many restrictions around women's dorms. Um, so feminists began focusing on men's abuse of women women's lack of ability to control their own reproduction safely and effectively, French law and courts that privileged men's desires, men's word, men's authority over women's, and how all this and more directly impacted women's lives in profoundly concrete ways. Women wanted the freedom to have sex like men had. They also wanted the freedom not to have sex when and where men wanted it. And they wanted the freedom to have sex with people who were not men. So all of that was part of this issue. Well, that brings me to my next question. Um, a gay political culture also grew out of May 68. And you write that the growth of lesbian political culture pushed feminism in directions that were both constructive and destructive to the movement as a whole. Can you talk more about the relationship between lesbian politics and women's liberation? To try to explain the growth of lesbian political culture, I want to remind listeners that the way societies conceive of sexuality and gender, both normative and marginal, is bound up in time, place, and historical context. And I, I know everybody understands that academically, but just to really think about it in this way, especially in the context of sort of contemporary gender studies and um, feminism today. One of the many things feminism in the 1970s allowed for was the acknowledgement of women's 
um, non-heterosexual desire. This seems beyond obvious now, but it was shocking then. But even this would have been simpler if the issue of lesbianism had remained simply the subject of desire. What was more complicated, perhaps more outrageous to many heterosexual men, but more destructive also to feminist solidarity, was that certain feminists made a conscious choice to repudiate men socially and sexually. The personal is political, that slogan that was so powerful, the idea that one's personal experience, and in the feminist case, it meant women's experience of their oppression, could serve as a political tool to enact social change was an incredibly powerful theory which created powerful practice. But that theoretical weapon was at times turned against heterosexual women who were seen as consorting with the oppressor. This might seem academic, but it wasn't. If you considered yourself a feminist and made feminist choices, but your comrades in arms were suggesting that you were a capo or a collaborator, think about what kind of chilling effect this would have on your feelings about and participation within the movement. On the one hand, there were feminists arguing for women to be given more respect and place in France. But on the other, many women who led outwardly conventional lives, in other words, who were married and had children, felt feminism had the movement or feminism and the movement had no place for them. And there was this false image of, you know, raving feminist banshees that the anti-feminists had used as a label but it seemed to ring true for them, especially for women from small towns or villages. And this didn't help liberate more women or bring more women into feminism, this idea, which is one of the points of a large social movement. Um, So ultimately it caused, we could say, a, a majority of French women to declare that they weren't feminists. Now, this isn't an indictment of radical feminism or radicalism in general, and I want to make that very clear, because that radicalism was needed to push the movement forward and was incredibly important um, for, uh, for the movement in all sorts of ways, politically, but also intellectually and theoretically. But it did have its unintended consequences, and I explore this tension uh, between both in the book. Um, in the 1970s, French feminists, despite this splintering into various factions that that you just described, um, were able to unite around the issue of women's right to sexual freedom and the legal right to control their bodies. And you discuss many of the groups and individual women who worked to legalize abortion in France in the 1970s. And I want to focus on two in particular. Uh, You mentioned one already, Giselle Alimi and then also Simone Weil. And before the, uh, the abortion debates, mm. Ali Mi was known for her work as a lawyer defending Algerian national, uh, nationalist militants during the Algerian war. And how did this experience translate into her work with women and abortion rights? There's a lot in this question I want to discuss. So first, the mention of French feminists splintering into various factions. The story of how this happened is essential to understanding why French feminism is so confusing and misunderstood. Broadly speaking, there were three large umbrella factions or tendances. First, the Marxist slash class focus groups who still wanted to keep economic structures at the forefront of the discussion about women's oppression. 
Secondly, there were the radical feminists who offered up a really sophisticated critique of the patriarchy and who wanted to see as much as possible of it chipped away. And third, there were the essentialists, primarily led by one woman, Antoinette Fouque, who started her own publishing house and who used psychoanalytic language to talk about women's special experience of their sexuality and consciousness and their special contribution to the world. But stripped of its fancy lingo, it was essentialism, and much more similar to the rhetoric used in the immediate post-war period, and counter to Beauvoir and the 1970s feminists, who were in many ways an anomaly. The first two tendances disagreed within a spectrum, but the Foup group engaged in a variety of practices and commentary that put it into open conflict with the others. When they did so, they took the other groups to court on a variety of pretexts. And Americans largely don't know this complicated drama, which is, again, I try to elaborate it and uh, take it apart. And they don't understand that their vision of French feminism as being more literary or psychoanalytic has something to do with the approach of the Fouque group, the essentialists, even though many American academics are unfamiliar with her name. So separately, Simone Weil uh, was health minister under the centrist Jacques Chirac, who understood that the ban on abortions was creating a medical health crisis for French women. This had always been the case, but as the sexual revolution took hold and birth control was either subpar or inefficiently used, the number of illegal and unsafe abortions was increasing. Plucked by Chirac from the general secretary of, of the Supreme Council of the Judiciary, um, where she had overseen, among other things, the treatment of women prisoners and child adoption, uh, to be named health minister, Vey was seen as tough and smart enough to lead passage of a bill legalizing abortion. First, she pushed through a law facilitating access to contraception. It had been legalized in 1967 with the uh, Nurwith law, um, but it was relatively restrictive, quite restrictive. Um, and then she redrafted the original abortion law, first proposed by the former health minister in 1973. What's interesting, um, and you can you can watch the uh, the videos of her of her speech online. What's interesting is that she spoke as a woman to the men they were mostly men in the assembly. And she managed to convince enough deputies to vote for the bill, which passed by a narrow margin. It passed in November, 1974, and went into effect in January, 1975. Gisela Animi's trajectory was similarly dedicated to affecting women's lives through the law, advocating for female victims of the Vietnam and Algerian war, for example. When a working class mother got in touch with her and begged her to be the legal representative for herself, three other women, and her daughter for uh, procuring, doing, and having an abortion, um, Adimi was said to have replied, if you want a high-profile lawsuit, then yes. And they said yes. And this was the famous Bobigny trial where she managed to have the daughter acquitted and the sentence of the mother and the others reduced and ultimately abrogated while putting the larger issue of abortions legalization on trial. It's interesting to see that both 
they and Adimi argued in their own way for the recognition that abortion was always a final recourse and that it had been available for a price and therefore off limits to working class women. They were not arguments about women's autonomy. And they appealed to the French Republic's um, the French Republic's ideology, but the French public's sense of decency and fairness. And the idea that, as they put it on the podium, abortion, quote, abortion is always a tragedy, un drame. But they flew in the face of many feminists' own views at the time who wanted the case to be argued on the grounds of women's right to their own bodies. Adimi wanted to call celebrities to testify, crafting her case to win the hearts and minds of the large public with as much media attention as possible, which ultimately was very effective. But feminists and many abortion rights activists wanted ordinary women on the stand to demonstrate common cause, and they really complained that Adimi was grandstanding. But in the end, this had a huge contribution towards legalizing abortion. You just mentioned Simone Weil, and as you said, she served as the health minister of France in the 1970s, and she pieced together the bill that would eventually legalize abortion. And what were some of the challenges that she faced when putting together this legislation? Well, the abortion bill was very conservative. Many of us would probably consider it unacceptably so today. For an elective abortion, and this wasn't a medical abortion, um, either because of the mother's life or um, some terrible fetal defect, for an elective abortion, the following conditions had to be met. No more than 12 weeks of amenorrhea, consultations with doctors and a psychologist, a signed statement of the woman that she was in quote unquote distress, although she got to say what that, that, that she was in distress. So that was a big piece of the legislation. The procedure had to be performed in a hospital. There had to be a waiting period of reflection. And there was also a conscience clause for doctors who did not want to do the procedure. They were not required to. And this is when thousands of abortions were being illegally performed, either in fancy doctor's offices or on kitchen tables. Despite all this, Vey was challenged by certain voices on the left who still trotted out the argument that in a non-exploitative world with adequate wages and childcare, women would feel fine about carrying all their pregnancies to term. And she was also challenged on the right. Um, with the specter of participating in an immoral act and a Malthusian one. Some accused Vey of engaging in a new genocide, which was ironic, I might add, because that is what the French compatriots had done to her. Mm -hmm. Together with her three siblings and her parents, they were deported from France to Auschwitz, where both her parents and her brother died. But during the debates, you had Jean-Marie Drillet, who was a reform MP for La Manche, actually condemning um, the law to her. And he was quoted as saying, suppose we find one of the doctors who practice torture and human vivisection. Is there a substantial difference between what he did and what will be put in practice in hospitals and clinics in France? 
Do you accept to see human embryos thrown into the crematoria or trash cans? And this was just one remark. Wow. So perhaps this and other remarks were a bridge too far for the majority of the deputies, <laughs> but the law passed and months later it was confirmed in the Senate. And it remains wow. with actual uh, expanded rights. Wow. Well, it's, so now I, I want to step back a little bit um, to talk about more general ideas, ideologies that shape French feminism uh, in particular, and to understand French feminism and women's liberation in France, you have to understand the French concept of universalism and the Republican ideology that emerged from the French Revolution, um, as well as the Napoleonic Code that was also a byproduct of the revolution. And could you explain these ideas for us? I will try. Um, and I'll try to tackle this in a very condensed way. So French universalism, born out of the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, was based on the idea that civil society should rise above cultural, religious, and historical difference. But there lies the rub, of course, because France was very French and Catholic, and it saw its particular culture as worth preserving, and still does. As American liberalism spread and gained world influence, both with its free market as well as its multicultural ideology, and the Le Penis gained political influence, this French universalist republicanism has presented itself as the third way. And this is why debates around ethnicity are so fraught. The French view the quote-unquote Anglo-Saxon model in which individualism is privileged as an erosion of the collective good of republicanism. And conversely, the French, um, and I'm saying this, I'm generalizing, of course, when I say the French, the French see contemporary Islamic states as overly oppressive and coercive. Traditionally, for French republicanism to work, however, ethnic groups are supposed to give up their particularities to become, quote unquote, French. And when they don't, in the case of Muslim French women who wear headscarves, for example, the French who identify strongly with this republicanism fear for its demise. What's interesting about French feminism is the way different strands of the movement have taken this French republicanism to task in the case of the radical feminists or employed it in the case of the parity campaign, um, and that's parité for equal political representation and, and also representation in, um, in uh, the business sector. Um, because the universal ideal of French citizenship has always deliberately overlooked social or cultural particularities of individuals for fear that this would erode the collective. Parity supporters have deftly argued that both can and must be recognized for the republic's liberty, equality, fraternity to be realized. In terms of the Napoleonic Code, the foundation of French law, it was written by a committee of jurists in 1804 when Napoleon was firmly ensconced in power. In short, um, as I understand it, a statutory law system, of which the Napoleonic Code is one, is more prescriptive than its common law counterpart. Based on Roman law, it has specific codes covering different areas of law, and there's little scope for judge-made law or jurisprudence. This is why feminists have maintained a 200-year assault on the code as it pertains to women. But this is also why 
when laws were put in place to equalize the treatment of men and women, less was and is left up to interpretation. There are laws on the books legalizing contraception and abortion, which have been expanded since they've been written. They're not court decisions um, like Roe v. Wade, um, which create precedents that have ample wiggle room, as we've seen in the United States. To, to wrap up our conversation, I'd like to hear your take on what has become known as the Deneuve letter and the backlash against the Me Too movement in France. And this is the letter signed in 2018 by about 100 French women, most famously by the actress Catherine Deneuve, in which they criticized the Me Too movement for presenting women as, quote, these poor little things, um, this Victorian idea that women are mere children who have to be protected. Um, They also wrote that as women, we do not recognize ourselves in this feminism, which beyond denouncing the abuse of power, takes on a hatred of men and sexuality. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I, that quote is very powerful. But first of all, I'd like to temper the analysis of backlash. Sometimes we reflectively read history through the immediate lens of the media. Um, the image that balance ton porc, or expose your pig, which was there, me too, um, was on everyone's lips in France. It wasn't. And then a huge backlash. So um, we don't have to necessarily see it as a backlash. I think it was a response to what some women felt was too much of a good thing. And this is part of a familiar pattern in France, whether you agree with them or not. Um, in, you know, in their letter, um, the group wrote exactly what you were saying, that um, we don't recognize ourselves in this feminism, right? Um, and this has been a familiar refrain against feminism since the 1970s. The refrain becomes more popular and louder depending on the temper of the times. In the early 1970s, there were fewer women who said they didn't recognize themselves in feminism. Many believed feminism was onto something. But as feminism and feminists seemed to move their focus from issues that the majority of women felt they could bond over, like sufficient childcare, equal pay for equal work, available contraception, rape laws, abortion rights, um, and yes, sexism at work. When it moved from those things that they felt really meant something to them and impacted them in a positive way to positions that took all men to task for being part of the patriarchy or that insisted women behave and feel in certain ways to be feminist at all, or in some ways challenge some, what they felt was some core um, positive relational difference between men and women. Women lost interest and no longer felt feminism spoke for them. The Deneuve group wrote that, quote, incidents that can affect a woman's body do not necessarily affect her dignity and must not as difficult as they can be, necessarily make her a perpetual victim. Because we're not reducible to our bodies, our inner freedom is inviolable. And this freedom that we cherish is not without risks and responsibilities, unquote. It was Beauvoir who pointed out that women were not reducible to their bodies, even though they were constrained by them. And she also argued that gender equality and some ineluctable gender differentiation 
could exist simultaneously. So you might see the response of Deneuve and company as particularly French. Hmm. One last thought, um, just to add, just to add a, a separate piece of this, is that mm-hmm. my book is really an overarching study, and there's so much more work to be done, especially exploring the 1970s feminist groups in the regional cities and in the provinces. And I really encourage students who are interested in France and feminism in the second half of the 20th century to start there. There are really excellent books on this period, but most are untranslated. Unfortunately, they're authored by people, um, by well-known historians like Sylvie Chaperon, Bibia Pavard, Christine Bard, and many others. And there are also fascinating studies of women and gender reconstruction that need to be read um, to understand the period in the decades following the war, such as Sarah Fishman's From Vichy to the Sexual Revolution, um, really all of Camille Hobsis's work, um, Bronwyn Winter, The Hijab and the Republic, um, really also spans this time period, just to name a few who try to sort through a variety of these thorny feminist issues. Well, Lisa, I, I really enjoyed reading your book, and I, and I think it definitely helps shed light on the historical context of these current debates happening in France today. And um, I just want to thank you so much for being here today. Beth, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. And really, since I do lead a double life, I really welcome anyone um, who is interested in what I said about K through 12 education. I know this doesn't sound very <laughs> classically academic, but if you are interested or curious, want to contact me um, and talk about it, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, but thank you so much. And I really, I really want to spread the word about um, history of feminism in France in the second half of the 20th century. We've been talking with Lisa Greenwald about her new book, Daughters of 1968, Redefining French Feminism and the Women's Liberation Movement. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.